Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Priest of Copper Beach Financial Group. If you have not heard the last podcast, this is actually part two of a two-parter. They have a couple guests on the show today. They are fantastic. Michael Paris, how are you today? I am good, Eric. How are you, sir? I am doing fantastic. John, I know you're there and you're ready to go. Yeah, Good to talk to you, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to the conversation. You guys really started a dive in deep and it was almost like we had to cut right at a great pivotal moment in the podcast. Uh, And I know you're going to continue that. So can you reintroduce the audience to your guests? Sure. We have today, and and again, please listen to part one with these two gentlemen. It was great. We have Stephen Cantor and Michael Brown from S2K. They are uh, real estate experts. And again, if you listen to part one, I think you'll get a good sense of that. Uh, gentlemen, thank you again for being on with us today. Hey, guys. Nice to have you back. Hey, thanks, thanks for you. having us again. Excellent. I'm surprised well, you invited us back. That's what I'm surprised about. Well, there was just too much good data. We had, we had to have you back. <laughs> Did Mike send us money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, you guys are great. Thanks. Well, Thanks for your attendance. Yeah, I think you know the struggle, and we were we were talking about this a little earlier with regard to we could probably be talking to hour hours on each one of those topics that we really just scratched the surface with the last time. And and this podcast, I think we wanted to dive in a little bit more deeply on some of uh, the opportunities that exist out there in the real estate market as it relates to more specific strategies potentially on the investment side. And I know, Michael Brown, one of the things that when we were talking about and, pl- and planning this podcast, one of the things that came up were uh, qualified opportunity zones. I think you wanted to touch on that a little bit today. And I think it's a great refresher for, for our listeners. We did a podcast on uh, opportunity zones a while back. It was maybe a couple of years ago at this point. So I think it'll be a good refresher there. And I think if I can introduce that topic, and obviously you guys will expand upon it. But one of the things that I think our clients, when we've brought up opportunities, one of the struggles that they have had is well, really two, I would say. Number one, I think that the tax benefits, if you will, of these uh, programs are fairly onerous to meet. Um, and maybe I'm wrong in that. That's just the feedback we've gotten. And the second is that maybe it's sometimes it's letting the tax tail wag the investment dog a little bit. And I've had quite a few conversations with our families where they look at maybe they're struggling to understand why they should invest their money into some of these areas that are classified as these qualified opportunity zones. And so I'll sort of lay that backdrop. But gentlemen, that was one thing I wanted to talk about today. And, and hopefully uh, you guys can shed some some light on that. Yeah. Thanks again for having us, um, having us back. I think the opportunity zone space right now is a very interesting place to look if you have capital gains that you're looking to defer your taxes. Um, certainly, that's going to be a, an initial reason to look into the space. But uh, just to put a pin in, in that thought that I think it's a great place, two years ago, Steve and I were looking at these opportunity zones and to raise equity for them. And I think even just two years ago, it was a little bit of a Wild West space. It was a relatively new program. Anytime there's some tax incentive 
program put out by the government. You have all sorts of people coming out of the woodwork, trying to take advantage, uh, maybe trying to take advantage of, you know, in a bad way, investors. And so we suddenly saw this overwhelming activity of every Tom, Dick, and Harry, so to speak, saying, I'm a real estate developer and I'm an opportunity zone guy and I'm going to raise a billion dollars. And then you say, great, what are you going to invest in? And an opportunity zone in the real estate space is primarily designed around development. Um, You need to buy a site that's in a qualified opportunity zone, and then you need to substantially improve the asset, which effectively means you need to double your cost in that acquisition. So the best way to put real capital into a property is to buy a piece of land and build property on it. Otherwise, you're just doing a very substantial renovation of something. So it's really naturally fits for development within real estate. And so development is you know, a risky part of real estate versus buying something that's cash flowing and having all sorts of people coming out of the woodwork saying, I'm an I'm a opportunity zone developer was a little concerning to us, especially when, again, we said, what are you buying? And they said, we'll figure that out later. First, we'll raise the money and then we'll figure out where to deploy it. So right. we were yeah, very yeah. particular in filtering through opportunities to hopefully have something to point to. And I think what happened early on is that noise started to quiet down and people found it's not that easy just to raise a billion dollars because you think it's a good idea. And investors usually do like to know what they're investing in or a track record. And so a lot of these early adopters fell out of the market. And now what we're seeing is that the people that are very active every day in the opportunity zone space generally are real estate professionals, generally would have a great track record. And generally are vetting their acquisitions around what are just ordinary fundamental real estate 101 dynamics. Is this a good location? Is there a market demand for what I want to build? Can I assemble the right team? Am I buying it at the right price? All those kinds of things. And then the tax benefits are sweetener. So when we see that, then that's taking something good and making it great or something great and making it great plus, right? And so- Just the 101 of Opportunity Zone, though, is as an investor, I'm able to take just the capital gain component of a a sale that I just made, and it could be of any asset class. It could be stock, it could be real estate, it could be art, anything that has a capital gain. And I can just take the gain and deploy that into this investment. And by putting it into this Qualified Opportunity Zone fund, I'm able to defer my capital gains tax through 2026. So I won't be, the, the taxes won't be due until 2027. So that's one immediate benefit. The next benefit is that if I stay invested for 10 years in the new investment, there's no capital gains on the new investment. So it's a, effectively a tax-free investment going forward. So I got to defer my taxes for at this point, call it five years um, on a backwards looking perspective of my old investment. And then I get really no tax exposure for the new capital gain potential. Additionally, if these investments are structured properly, I can benefit from depreciation off the new asset, which also the depreciation does not, uh, there's no recapture of that at sale, which is something to factor in. And if structured properly along the way, the depreciation can offset any income coming off that asset. So these can be extremely tax efficient investments. But I think our view on the space is if it's not a good real estate deal, I wouldn't let 
as you said before in the intro, I wouldn't let the tax deferral guide you into a bad investment. I don't think that's smart ever. So if it's a good real estate deal and the tax benefits, you need the deferral now and you're interested in this investment in the long haul, this is an amazing space to invest in. And, and, And so that's what we're seeing right now. And and as far as maybe a stigma that people might think, oh, Opportunity Zone, this is some outskirts of some town USA, just to step back on how these zones are created, every governor of every state was given the authority to identify census tracts. And the census data was from 2010, I believe. And so like anything with the government, <laughs> there's data and then there's politics. So we're seeing opportunity zones in downtown Brooklyn, New York, next to the skyscrapers. We're seeing them in downtown Tampa Bay or Tampa, Florida. We're seeing them in Charlotte, San Jose, California, which is really on the edge of Silicon Valley. And we're seeing them also in East St. Louis, which is what you might think of as an opportunity zone. Scottsdale, Arizona. (laughs) But it's every place, every state. And if you went on the internet and searched your hometown and your home state, you would be surprised that opportunity zones will flow into places that in your mind, you're like, wow, I can't believe that place is getting the benefit of this program, but it's there. So it's both in places that are more, more rural and need the capital sort of incentive to bring capital there, but it's also in, in you know main and main type locations in major cities across the country. So if you do your homework and, and, and look for attractive uh, investments in the space, you will find ones in A plus markets across the country. So uh, we're very excited about the space and our interest in participating in the space has only grown as time has gone on. Yeah, that's great, Michael. And I hope I, when I started that, I didn't start off on too much of a negative track, but because I think you, you really improved my view on on opportunity zones and as well, a lot of what my clients have, because you're right. I mean, you have to have the right type of real estate investment to substantiate a lot. That's the foundation that I think perhaps at the beginning when it was hot and new, you didn't quite have that as much. And uh, right. so You're not investing in some tax shelter, so to speak. You're investing yeah. in a real estate development project. So you better vet the project, the team, the market first and, and not think, oh, just because I get to kick the can for five more years on my capital gain, this is smart. That, that would not be a good way to, to vet these. But with that said, there are tremendous amount of very solid real estate transactions that have great returns on their face that then you're getting effectively tax-free. Yep. That was perfect. Uh, um, the other topic that I know, Michael, you and I had to have talked about in the past were uh, Delaware Statutory Trust or DSTs. And, and these are, again, a topic that we've covered on this podcast uh, before, but it's been a while. Uh, maybe you could touch on on those a little bit and how they're useful in uh, clients' real estate holdings. Sure. A DST is a structure that a, a 1031 exchanger, so someone selling real estate and looking to exchange all of their capital from that sale back into a like-kind real estate transaction. This lets you invest as almost a fractional share, so to speak, in a institutional asset and, and, and typically a institutionally managed institutional quality asset. So you sell a $500,000 beachfront condo, and then you invest the $500,000 into a 
hundred million dollar class A apartment building somewhere in the U.S., maybe in Orlando, Florida. Last year, and I just got the stats on this actually today. It was the year end in review from last year. Last year there was almost seven and a half billion dollars of equity raised in this space, and about wow. half of that was in multifamily, and then about twenty percent was in industrial. So you're seeing. A tremendous amount of people, and I think the average DST investor is investing in the low six figures. So these aren't like the Blackstones of the world investing in these properties. These are normal Americans, normal investors trading a small investment property and kind of trading up into access into an institutional asset. So seven, seven and a half billion of uh, equity wow. translates to north of $15 billion of real estate last year was bought structured and sold into this universe. So it's a huge amount of uh, product that's being moved into this space. And it's only growing. It's only growing from there. Certainly with the the headlines a year and change ago with Biden coming in, people got very spooked. Is 1031 going away? Hopefully it doesn't, but it certainly got more and more people focused on, you know, how can I keep my money in a tax efficient way invested in real estate? Yeah. One of the things I want to go back to the opportunity zones. And I, and I know I could be a little confused on, on actually how it was created, but the zones were created by the state officials. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll, go to, I'll go to Scottsdale, Arizona. I have clients in Scottsdale and Scottsdale, Arizona has probably 40% of their real estate is in opportunity zone. How can that be? Is that because 10 years ago, that part of Arizona didn't have a lot of big footprints and it matured over the last 10 years, and it happened to be lucky to be in the opportunity zone area? Am I correct at that? The short answer would be yes. And, and, and I don't on, on this call have the exact criteria, but I, as an example, downtown Brooklyn or in Tampa, some of these locations, when they're looking at income levels from a decade ago, the area might be developed, but there may not be a real a census tract in that location, if you follow what I'm saying. So if it's office buildings and other commercial uses, this is where the art and science of, of, of politics probably comes into play, that when you are working with data and you say, well, th- this uh, square mile has very low income, there also may not be a lot of people living there. So it's somewhat convenient to be able to use statistics to your benefit, but it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. I think these areas... In some cases, do need a shot in the arm, or this is just a, you know as a, a further catalyst for you know modern redevelopment and development. So again, if if your clients went on the internet after listening to this and said, "In my state, where are the opportunity zones?" and looked at a map, I think you would see areas that seem to make sense to you, and then other areas that you might scratch your head and say, "Wow, that's exactly sort of, right." It's yeah. sort of Maine and Maine, pick a town, USA. Wow, I, I didn't realize that my uh, an opportunity zone investment could be in the heart of a major city in many cases. And I'm assuming, Michael, that that people that already owned an asset in that zone before it was a zone up their value. I'm guessing because it's now part of that opportunity zone structure. Am I correct? I would agree with you that if you owned, a, if you're a legacy owner of yeah. a site that was deemed an opportunity zone, your value should only go up. I wouldn't imagine it should go down from that moniker. The, the, the challenge is that in order to be eligible as an Opportunity Zone fund, you need to have newly acquired the site since the program started. So what we're seeing is legacy owners are selling because they can't directly access the benefit of that you know, tax play. So you're okay. seeing 
this as a catalyst to transaction volume in certain markets picking up. I, I haven't seen an unbelievable run-up in price because this still is a long road ahead, right? It's not just I buy the site as an opportunity zone. I'm you know tax-free forever. You still have to build something. You still have to be successful in the thing you build. So there's still a, a long road ahead, but it's certainly a, a sweetener from a valuation perspective. Can, can I just try it just a little different? I don't think the politicians or whoever came up with this were, were far off. I think you got to remember that you got to look what's happened in the last couple of years, right? It wasn't like they went, mm, let me just try to see if I can come, get around the rules here. I think when you look at a lot of these towns, something has occurred much more recent that has changed it from being a place you had never gone to, to a place that you might think about considering in the next step. And that, look, that's really what goes on in, in terms of, we have a lot of people and we're trying to put them in a home somewhere, put them somewhere, right? So when I look at the stuff, I can easily look back and go, I get what they were thinking about this in 12 or 24, or 36 months ago. And the world has just moved in their direction and it doesn't always move in every direction. So I, I think when this was done, it was like, let's just make it so that, that we can c continue to create opportunities for people to live, to, to work, to play in areas that can use the help. And I think to a large extent, it has started to do that. It's never going to change overnight the areas that no, one's gonna, that, that, that no one's going into. But hopefully as things expand out to those places, they're the next ones to take the benefit of it. So I, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant play by the government to, to try to get dollars into places that they'd like to do it, to try to grow the, their tax base that, and try to create more stuff for people to, to work, live, and play. I, I could agree more, but I haven't seen a big push for it. Really, I haven't seen anything in the media that talks about it as being an opportunity for the average investor. And I say average investor. I'm assuming there's minimums involved to get involved in a program. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's a good question to ask. What would be the minimum typically to join in on a fund or a strategy in this arena? I'm not sure it's a minimum, but they've got to be accredited investors most of the time. You're yeah. not really going to sell most of these things non-traded in, in, in development that's not to an accredited investor. So I think that's what holds it down the most. Okay. I mean, to echo your point there, Dad, it's interesting because it was so hot right when it came out. And now you, you really just don't hear as much about it anymore. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but to your point that it's not really discussed a lot. And I think it'll be interesting to your point, Stephen, in 20 years, looking back to see how effective this was, because I, I think it is a good decision and a good a piece of the tax code from a policy standpoint. It'll just be interesting to see how it all plays out. But I think you guys would know that more than we would in terms of how it's looking. I know you guys are looking at that space a lot, and I'm sure you're not the only one. So it's, it's, well, uh, I think it's making tractions just how much. Steve, I was going to say, I was going to put something to Steve. I don't know if you would agree with this, but and to Michael's point, two years ago, I agree. We were hearing about opportunity zones all the time. And we were, as okay, industry players in, in various capacities, concerned about opportunity zones as, a, as an investment vehicle. It was still new, it's complicated. It's, IRS meets financial you know, capital markets. And so there was a lot to figure out. While today you may hear less about it on the surface, I think we're seeing that the adoption rate from investors and the acceptance from the capital markets is better than ever. So it's kind of like yeah, this growing undercurrent of uh, success within the program. Momentum. Well, and, 
And I'm going to take that a step further right now. Think about where the world is. A lot of people have substantial stock gains in their portfolio. A lot of people are starting getting a little nervous about the volatility of the stock market. For the last few years, I believe, and you guys know better than I do, most people have not been willing to take their profits off the table in the stock market. They believe it only goes one way. I think as people start to take those profits off the table and have gains, as a financial advisor, I'm not one, but as a financial advisor, the key question that most people ask is, how do I reduce my tax bill? And I think you'll get people that might never have looked at it saying, wow, I could take my principal back out and just roll my gain and I can at least defer it at, at least. And if I could find some good deals, this might well be worth it. So every vehicle has its time. And I think if you believe, you know, I think the stock market has been the vehicle of choice of most people over the last few, you know, X amount of years. You could see why. But interest rates go up. Usually the stock market doesn't do as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, Steve, the last uh, podcast, we talked about the sectors of real estate. You mentioned that the younger generation are on the move, which I couldn't agree more. And they're traveling more. They're more flexible in their, uh, where they want to go each and every year. Uh, do you see the hotel space, motel space in the Opportunity Zone arena as an asset that has a kind of a double benefit? You have, you have a great asset. In, in the hotel itself, and it happens to be an opportunity zone. Do you see a lot of that in the marketplace? We've seen very little of that so far. Oh, um, Yeah, yeah. I like branded select service hotels. Now, if you think about it, people are traveling, but they don't want to go into a hotel today and, and see a lot of people because of COVID. And if you look at how they're performing, they've performed very well over the last six right. months in the year. So, no, we have not seen that yet. And, and, and maybe the reason for that is hotels are usually the last thing that develops as you build out your town. People don't visit until there's people living there. So I think that might be one of the reasons, but that's a good question. I'm not sure. Gentlemen, I have a more of a technical question on opportunity zones, and I don't know if you know the answer, but is do, do these opportunities have to be registered? Do they have to be put in a fund, or is this something that anybody can do on their own and find a place that qualifies as an opportunity zone and buy a piece of property and develop it there? It, or, how, what's the structure around that? It is structured as a fund. And, and I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I don't believe the criteria to be a fund is much more than paperwork, so to speak, and, and a registration to your point. But you can't just buy a piece of a development parcel in opportunity zone and be eligible right. inherently. So th there is a, you know, again, when, when you, when you have the IRS involved, there's going to be some paperwork, but I think you, you form a qualified opportunity zone, a business and, and a fund that owns the business. So it's just a bunch of legal entities and paperwork that need to be filed, but there is some formality around the, the program for sure. Hey, Steve, I'm going to, I'm going to support your comment about the equity markets and how strong they've been for the last 12 years. And there's tremendous amount of gains in, in these portfolios. And it, it's a marvelous opportunity to look at shifting that asset class from stocks and bonds to a real estate that has an inflation benefit to it. And it has an opportunity for growth uh, as well. And it's tax efficient. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think you said that perfectly. Absolutely. Perfectly. Yes. 
So I, I think investors should, you know, I'm, I'm always challenged by where the next, what's the next decision for clients to invest into as a family asset. And, and the inflation's now, and I don't need to tell you guys, it's a hot topic. Uh, everyone's confused about what the real inflation rates are. They talk about 7%, but I think we all agree it's more than that. And they're looking to buy precious metals and looking to buy Bitcoins and they're looking to buy other asset classes that don't correlate to stocks and bonds. And I think not only do you have, this is a good asset class for the inflation environment we're in, now you got a tax benefit to boot. So I think as an investor, this is, again, as long as you qualify for this, I know that you have to have a certain net worth and a certain income level. But anyone who is in that in that category should most certainly go back to their advisor and say, is this something I should consider as a strategy to move my portfolio in something that's going to be inflation protected and give me some protection on the tax side? I, I think it's I think it's a conversation we should be having. And you opened my eyes up after today that I'm going to have deeper conversations with some of our families in, in that regard, because they all have large portfolios that say, what do we do with this thing? <laughs> well, say something to think about when you're talking to your client is also the the horizon of a development deal starts with development, of course. And so your money is going into the fund and you just put in a capital gain. So you put in $100,000. Well, in in 2027, you're going to owe capital gains tax on that $100,000. So something that we look very carefully at is how long, how complicated is this development project um, going to be to actually open the property and get to a place that you're cash flow positive? And what's important about that is that you're investing in a fund that's the equity in that development, and they're getting construction loan. But in two, three, four years, once the property is delivered and open, they're going to be going to a permanent lender and taking out a new debt to replace that construction loan. And what we're seeing is that, especially in the multifamily space and the industrial space and property types that don't take forever, you're not building a skyscraper, they maybe take two, two and a half, three years to build end to end, that well before that tax bill will be due in 2027, through refinance of that development property, the investor should see 40, 50, 60, maybe 80% of their investment dollar return to them through refinance proceeds that are distributed by the fund, which is very important because now they have money back in their pocket to pay that tax bill. Right. And they effectively have option. They used house money, gains money uh, to invest. So effectively house money. And now they're getting their money substantially back to pay the taxes and almost have very little exposure to the project forward, which hopefully vetted properly has tremendous further return profile attached to it. So and that's something we look at very carefully, not just deferring the taxes, but getting returns back to you well in time for that 27 tax bill and then take it from there. Wow. That's a, that's a great uh, end there. I didn't even think of it that way, but you're correct. Yeah. So it has a lot of, I mean, listen, when I can use Uncle Sam's tax code to shelter growth for me, I, I'm all in. I tell our clients all the time. Our goal is to, is to manage that tax efficiency as they invest into asset classes, whether it's their investment, stock portfolio, or real estate, they have to take advantage of it when they can. I think hey, the opportunity hey, zone fits it perfectly. Can I throw one thing in there? Sure. Here, here's the unknown. And I want to be very clear about it, right? So you we don't like unknown, facts. Steve. <laughs> yep. We want facts. 
Right. You will owe a tax. Right. So <laughs> exactly. I don't know what the tax rate's going to be then. So remember, you're going to be taxed in that year, not on the tax rate today, but on the tax rate then. Correct. Right. So let's just keep that, that, that clear that we don't know that tax rate. So right. I always believe if you're going to tell a story, you always tell the whole story. So, yes. Yeah, that was a great point. You're right, Stevie. I, th- I think point being, there's a lot to factor into with these strategies, uh, which is why I think it's it's nice to have experts like you folks that are more boots on the ground, really looking at the opportunities day to day, and then obviously working with your advisors who understands your personal situation to be able to answer maybe a question uh, like the topic you brought up, Steve, in terms of where tax rates might be and things of that sort. So yeah, you have to coordinate all these activities. That's that's really what I take away from this. I'll tell you what, it, I, I, it just clicked to me one more time that two years ago when the Opportunity Zone was introduced, the stock market was continuing to grow and people weren't necessarily making the decision to come out of the markets because it was it was on fire. Now they're starting to see the market adjust and they're trying to figure out a way they can get out of these portfolios and buy other asset classes and not pay tax. Well, this is the way to do it. Do you realize how, ma- how many built-in tax liabilities there are there? Oh, it's, the it's enormous. Yeah. And they're waiting to get it. They're, they're scared about the markets tumbling and they're making quick decisions to go to cash or to buy gold or whatever it might be. But whatever they do, and they have a 100% gain over the last 12 years in their portfolio, this is a great solution for that, which it just clicked again one more time. We have to start having those conversations with all our clients to make sure they, they look at this option. So any financial advisor out there listening to this, this is a, or client, go back to your financial advisor and say, listen, is this something that we can do with these gains that I have in this portfolio? I've enjoyed the success of the markets, but I think change is afoot and we need, we need to make another decision here. And I, I, I think it's a great topic for today. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. And I, unfortunately, I think we're out of time again. Could have made this a four-part podcast, I feel like, at the end of the day. So maybe we'll have to have you you guys back on uh, in the future. This was great. I want to thank you guys again and best of luck to you guys. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank Pleasure. you. Guys, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much again, Michael and Stephen, for being on the show. Brought a wealth of knowledge to it. John and Michael, thank you so much for bringing them on the show. I know the listeners have got to have questions. I still have a ton of questions. If they do want to reach out, Michael, how's the best way to get a hold of you? You can always call our office. It's area code 856-988-8300. And you can always reach us on LinkedIn uh, or our website, www.cbfgllc.com. All right. Fantastic. Again, thank you guys. And thank you for tuning in and listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Brees. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time.